Welcome to the Shallow Dive on Koheles, the book of Ecclesiastes. Join us as we explore the treasures gathered by King Solomon. I hope you enjoy it. Perk Yud Pasukhes, chapter 10, verse 8. Hofer Gumatz Boyipo. One who digs a ditch, within it he shall fall. Uforitz Goder, Ishrenu Nachash. And one who breaks through a barrier shall be bit by a snake. Let's see how Targum explains this. There's a context here, which Targum is working on, the previous verses. Going back to verse 5, we have something that appears to be an error from before the king, from before God, and how he guides world history. It seems like he's not necessarily achieving what we understand to be his goals. And then the next couple verses explain how that is so surprising. Those that are empowered to dominate the culture seem to be the exact opposite characters of who you would think, from a godly perspective, he should empower towards that end. And now, he already laid the seeds for understanding it as a consequence of sin. Now he's going to explain further. Anas midas dino. The divine measure of judgment. The attribute of judgment. Response. Vechein omaras inun garmolohon called up and speaks out. They have brought this upon themselves, Koda, all of this, Hechma Digvar Dechorishucha Bifarashas Oracha, similar to a man who digs up a pit in the public thoroughfare, Be Ischayev Lamepa. Therein he is guilty. To fall. He, he's convicted, as it were, to fall into that pit that he made. The Uma di Ovaras Alexeras Memradadonai and the nation that has transgressed the divine decree, the utterance of God, which, although nameless over here, clearly from the context in the previous verses, was the house of Israel, the Amoch Beis Israel. Usikifu Guda de Alma Nefalo Biad Malka Rashia Dinochis Lahon Kechivia. The overpowering of the wall of the world, as it were, is what appears. that the nation has fallen into the hands of a wicked king that bites them like a snake. 
which is surprising in terms of God's goals for the development of civilization, but not surprising when we understand that that is also the divine measure of judgment. If somebody digs a pit, they fall in it. That is a, a facet of mida connected mida, divine, the divine measure of justice, judgment. The cosmic justice is extraordinarily precise. So although the Jewish people should, in theory, to fulfill God's will, have a significant role as a light unto the nations, a kingdom of priests for all of humanity, but in the abundance of the sins of the house of Israel, unfortunately, the Jewish people have sabotaged that very goal. It's, as it were, a conflict within the divine hand in guiding history. God has a goal, but part of that goal is empowering people to have choices, and those choices can have consequences. Those consequences seem, at times, to yield results that are not what you'd think, and in fact, not what God is actually guiding the, the story of human civilization towards. It's a bit of a, a side uh, detour. But that detour is also part of the divine plan. And it is a facet of divine judgment. If the Jewish people messed up, so they're not able to fulfill their role. So falling into that pit is, is the consequence of the one who digs it. Let's see how Rashi explains this. Chofer Gumatz, one who digs a pit, Bo ye a ditch, he within that pit shall, shall fall into it. Pamim shuhunofabo, kiloma yeshlocha kherish ra, visofola shavalov masof. It's not always what happens, but sometimes he falls into the pit that he dug. Sometimes you have one that maliciously sets a trap, digs a ditch, a pit, and then it comes back to entrap him. We find that the descendants of Nebuchadnezzar, who destroyed the temple, his children were wiped out through the vessels of the temple. Shneema, as the verse states in Daniel Hei Chavgemo, 523, Book of Daniel, so Nebuchadnezzar, through his destructiveness, brought about his own personal tragedies. 
which is par for the course. That is to be expected with divine judgment. Uforetz goder, siog shel chachamim, defense of the sages, lahavor al one who breaks through the barriers set up by the sages, rabbinic legislation, the consequence, Yishchenu Nochosh, that they shall be bit by a snake, Misa Bereshamayim, death at the hands of heaven. Ulfi, Shadiba Beloshan, treats as God there, Hizke, Betashumim, Loshan Neshichas Nochosh. Shehudar Bechore, Nikfei Kosle, Batim Prutzen. The motif is appropriate. We we can see that where do snakes burrow? Where do they hang out? In areas that are sometimes abandoned, are dilapidated. So if someone breaks this solid and sturdy wall and turns it into a ruin, they foster a habitat for snakes. So it falls back upon them. They've broken this barrier. They should expect to be bitten by a snake that they have courted by this destructive action. Now this is a, a very important difference between Bnei Noach and Bnei Yisra. This aspect of what Rashi is telling us, Siyog Shal Chachamim, the fence of the sages. This capacity to legislate, that is something that the Torah clearly delineates. If we look in the Rambam and Sefer Mitzvahs, the book of Mitzvahs, <coughs> he speaks about the legitimacy of rabbinic legislation. Referring loosely to the generally conceived notion that Jewish law is based on God's law. But Jewish certainly po- is. Jewish political law is based on God's law. Is that basically what you're referring to there? Well, much more than political law, okay. although there are laws that relate mm-hmm. to political structures, but mm-hmm. any facet okay. of Jewish law. Umashir okay. Li, says the Raman, in Sheresh Rishon, in Sefer Mitzvot, what would appear to me, Shavim al we have enactments when we look at rabbinic commands such as Megillah, Mikra Megillah, the reading of the Megillah, Megillah's Esther, for example, Lahalikner, we're coming up to Hanukkah, we're going to light the candles of Hanukkah, Jews make a blessing, Asher that has commanded us and sanctified us through this command, it's a form of connection between us and God through command as opposed to volunteer. The question posed in the Gemara in Shabbos 23a is, Where were we commanded to listen to the sages that enacted this rabbinic enactment? So where do we find a command that justifies such a form of blessing? This is rabbinic in origin. The Amru Milosasa. The Talmud answers that there's a biblical 
injunction, lo salsa, do not turn away from the directives of the sages. So that is a biblical command. There's a biblical authorization for Jews that the Sanhedrin and those that have the function of Sanhedrin are empowered to legislate. There's a, a structure of how that works. If Xeras, a decree, is able to be accepted and fulfilled, if it actually is fulfilled, there's a procedure, if you will, of gaining legitimacy as an actual fulfillment of Los Saucer. But once that takes place, the rabbinic enactment, once it is fully applicable and legitimate, embodies this verse, Los Saucer, do not deviate, turn away from the directives of the sages. And that is God speaking. This is in the Torah. It says, Los Saucer, do not turn away. So therefore, we are commanded by God to follow that legislation, although it's rabbinic legislation. So when we read the Megillah, we say, Asher Kedishonu, it has commanded uh, sanctified us, Vitzivonu, and it's commanded us. Where did he command us? When the Torah says, Los Saucer, do not turn away. And it is actually a case of legitimate rabbinic legislation. So it has the biblical support of Los Saucer. So this is specifically for Jews. At least that's certainly the Pashtus, the, the most basic understanding. Let's look at how the Ramam describes non-Jewish inheritance. Nachlos, Pergvav, chapter 6 of Inheritance. Halacha Tes and Yud, paragraph 9 and 10. A non-Jew inherits his father from the Torah. There's a biblical recognition of inheritance from father to son among non-Jews. But all their other structures of inheritance, let them do it according to their customs. Although there's a very sophisticated series of inheritance who gets what, first, second, third, all that structure within Jewish inheritance is not biblically mandated for non-Jews. And we don't force that upon non-Jews. We don't say, you got to do it this way. Non-Jews can create their own structure other than what is biblically mandated, that the sons inherit the fathers. That's biblical. Fathers? That's a good question. He says Hagoy, which is a generic term. Some understand daughters as well. Others do not. So it's not particularly clear in the Ramam whether the Yerushas Haben, that the inheritance of the son, would be parallel. Because within the Jewish world, a daughter does not inherit if there are sons on a biblical level. It can have customs, but biblically, that is the case. For non-Jews, it's somewhat obscure. And the, other things happen besides inheritance, whether or not they're 
our sons have daughters or only one or the other. But certainly if there are only sons, then there's no question the sons would inherit. If there are only daughters within Jewish law, daughters inherit. Would you say that that would apply equally to non-Jews? Possibly. Or perhaps it's all within the framework of their customs, mm. which the Ramam approves of. He doesn't say what those customs are. He gives a certain legitimacy <clears throat> to the ability to establish those customs. And some commentaries are actually surprised about it. They wonder, what is the force of these customs? Why do we not consider it as hefker, as ownerless? If there is no inheritor by Torah law, <clears throat> let it be considered ownerless, like the law that pertains to a convert that has no inheritors upon his death, his assets become ownerless. So that is the question that people are raising in the commentaries, is why is the Ramam seemingly so conciliatory towards those structures that if it's not the son, does it go to the uncle, grandfather, cousins, how do you structure that inheritance of a wife, uh, all sorts of... Con Questions can come up, and the Ramam says everything beyond the simple case of the inheritance, the son to the father, is not biblical, but we allow the and accept. The father to the son, you mean? Yes. Yeah. I mean, well, you could, right. Yeah, if, yeah, if, the yeah, father, if the father dies, then the son will inherit biblically, but if there is no son, so then every other step beyond that is subject to their customs. Well, as, they, as opposed to saying that it is ownerless. A, a will is circumventing the biblical law. That's how a will works. Structurally, a person is not in charge of their assets after they die. They're out of the picture. And the Torah says what happens to their assets after they die. So the, the mechanism of a will is to say that I'm giving a gift in such and such a manner a moment before I die when he still is in control of his assets. That is how the structure of will work, which circumvents what the Torah says. The Torah says, when he dies, this is what happens. He doesn't have a say in it. He, is, he has different ideas. He thinks they're better. Maybe he's right, maybe he's not right. See, it's upending what the Torah would have said by giving gifts. A person can give a gift in their lifetime. Yeah. So that's, okay. by Jewish law, <laughs> what can transpire, but if it's working through the laws of inheritance, the person is dead, the Torah clearly speaks out who gets what in what order, and he's, he's not empowered over his assets that he used to have anymore. <laughs> the, the, the Torah recognizes that by a non-Jew that has converted, he has no relatives, halachically, as a convert, as a ger, if he has children, they are his inheritors. If he does not have children, so then his properties become ownerless, hefker. And the, the question asked is, why don't we say the same thing? When the Torah recognizes only one form of inheritance, if that's not applicable, why don't we say there's nothing else and it becomes ownerless? The Ramam is not going that way. The Ramam is not viewing it as ownerless. He's clearly giving credence to minhagam. People have customs that are acceptable and to be followed, not to be rejected. Say, no, no, that's not legitimate. It's really ownerless. 
uh, maybe he, he got it through that custom, maybe if somebody took it away from him, he's, is he allowed to or not? The Rambam says, Lafimian Hagam. We allow them to do it according to their custom. This is not a violation of Torah. It's not Chidush Das. This is within the framework, I would suggest, of legitimate legislation, like we find in the Talmud, the concept that Tanai Shabbamamunkayim, when you have monetary issues that intersect with, among people, you have, you have questions of liability, uh, responsibility, within the world of, of financial considerations, the Torah says a person can make their own deal. So although the Torah says, for example, that a, an unpaid watchman has certain liabilities and is absolved of liability in other cases, people that want to enter into a, a contract between themselves can make any deal they want. They can say, I'm going to be an unpaid watchman, but I want zero liability. Or the other guy can say, I'm not going to pay you, but I want you to take full liability. If they agree, they agree, and it's binding. A person can do what they want with their money within the framework of the Torah. The Torah gives people that power, similar to, in a certain sense, vows. A person can make a vow that is binding, and that vow is recognized by the Torah, Jew and non-Jew. So with your money, the Torah recognizes that you can make a deal with your money that is binding. So if as a society they've presented a series of how inheritance works, although it's not based on Torah, it's not called a violation of Torah, it's not chidush das, allow that to, to develop and view it as legitimate is the implication of the Ramam. Do not say that it, once the Torah is not talking, it automatically is hefker, is ownerless, this is within the framework of what non-Jews may legitimately construct. Continues the Ramah. And a Jewish convert does not inherit his father, the non-Jew. Even though he used to be subject to the uh, windfall, if you will, he would have inherited his father, but now that he's converted, he will not inherit his father. He is halachically viewed as estranged from his biological family. Ella midivran. But rabbinically, tiknu lo shiyarish keshahaya. There's a rabbinic enactment that he shall inherit like he was standing to inherit before he converted. This is rabbinic. Now the interesting point here, here's an, there's an intersection between Jew and non-Jew within rabbinic enactment. You have a Jewish convert and his non-Jewish siblings, all standing to inherit. And the rabbinic enactment says he inherits among his former brethren. Halachically, they're no longer his brothers. Biblically, he does not inherit his father, his biological father, because he is converted. Rabbinically, they said he does inherit. But this is coming out of the pockets of his biological brothers. From the Torah law, his biological brothers should get the entire inheritance. He should get nothing because he is converted what? from non-Jew to Jew. And somehow this intersects with someone who converts from Jew it's, to non-Jew? It intersects also. rabbinic authority that normally is reserved for Jewish people, seemingly is now impacting non-Jews. 
And then, how so? Again, I'm sorry. Because the non-Jewish brothers would inherit more biblically. Before the rabbis got involved, they would inherit the whole pie. Because their brother converted. He's Kemandalesa. He's like not there anymore. The same way the Torah says that he's Kekotan Shinoldam. He's like a newborn baby. So he's not part of their family anymore. Although biologically he is, but halachically he's not. By biblical law, he doesn't inherit. So they would get the entire inheritance. Rabbinically, they said he also gets. This Jewish convert still inherits his father, rabbinically. Says the Rambam, continuing, the rationale of this rabbinic enactment, like he would have inherited had he not converted, as a concern, if they don't make this enactment, there's a risk that he will resort, revert to his pagan identity. Say, what do I need to be Jewish for? I'm losing my inheritance. I'll go back to uh, join my pagan family and inherit. I stand to gain a lot. Who needs, who needs it? So the rabbis got involved and said, rabbinically he inherits. Says the Rambam, and it appears to me, that conditions are effective, it works, concerning inheritance, if somebody makes a condition, an inheritance, that works, meaning there's a prohibition, for example, for a Jew to take non-kosher wine, for example. It's, it's not kosher. So he now is Jewish, and he's inheriting, and his father has a huge wine cellar, had, he died, and the brothers are divvying up who gets what, he can say, the, the Jew can say, you know what, why don't you guys take the wine cellar and I'll take the grain, I'll take the oil, I'll take the other things that are kosher. I can't take the wine. Even though, to some degree, he is benefiting from that division, from the wine. Because if they would just divide things equally, so then he would have to dispose of some of that wine, they could keep it or not keep it, the other brothers, but by him saying, you guys take the wine, he's gaining on the rebound by getting more of the other things he can take. So that is acceptable, says the Raman, based on the idea that the non-Jew is not required to abide by the rabbinic enactment. So the whole thing is basically a gift. So since it's not binding on the non-Jews, if they say, sure, we'll take the non-kosher wine and you can have the, the oil and the flour. They're basically giving him a gift anyway. The rabbinic enactment is to not stand on the Jewish letter of the law biblically and say, it's not your money, just walk away. Instead of, no, rabbinically, if they're willing to share the inheritance with you, then you may participate and even gain in this manner because basically they're giving you a gift. They're not required to abide by the rabbinic enactment. They can say, very nice that your rabbi said something. Losasser said to Jewish folks, not to us, we don't have to listen to them. They have no authority over us. And the biblical law is we get everything, you get nothing. Have a nice day. And in as much as they can do that, so <clears throat> making any condition is just a, a further development of their gift, essentially. Yeah, you had a question? 
where is the um, Vedavola principle? Uh, where is where's the first the Vedavola principle that Ramjula doesn't inherit? I mean, it's non Jewish father, or that, that a convert does not inherit from his non Jewish So the inheritance that a non Jew inherits from his father is based, the Gemara and Kedushan says, that Yerches, I believe, is from. Gemara first starts with Yerusha, Masati Laseya, that Esav, but Esav may not be a good proof because he is considered Yisrael Mumer, as we mentioned. He is considered quasi Jewish. But there is a good verse, a good support for this idea from Lot. That God has given as an inheritance for Lot. So that is, he's not Jewish, and he gets an inheritance, a paternal inheritance for father to son. That is the substantiation for the general concept. The idea of Katan Shinoladami that is asserted multiple times in the Talmud, I'm not aware of any biblical source for that concept that he is considered Katan Shinoladami, like a newborn baby that is not related to his parents, meaning I don't know of a, a specific source. It's not contested in the Talmud, it's asserted multiple times, but I don't know of any scriptural proof to that idea. It could be a self-mushmusina, that I don't know. If it's just an oral tradition strictly, or if there are any scriptural derivations for this idea. But it is not contested that he is, to the best of my knowledge, that a, a non-Jew who converts to become Jewish is considered newborn, and even leniently, in theory, if his mother would convert, he could technically marry her. Biblically, rabbinically it's prohibited, but biblically they are no longer related. They're two converts that are unrelated biblically. And rabbinically they restricted that type of union. It should not appear that he's downgrading his level of sanctity. He was biblically prohibited to marry his biological mother before he jumped into the mikvah. Now he's permitted, so therefore they restricted it rabbinically. But that's not a question for our purposes because certainly a Jew is subject to the rabbinic restrictions and legislation, whether it be to do something or not to do something, but non-Jews are not. The Rambam says yearly, it appears to me. He, he makes this very clear. So, when Rashi speaks about, back to our verse, Paritzgeder, when who breaks through a barrier, this is referring to Siyog Shal Chachamim, the fence of the sages. As it relates to Jews, we have a biblical edifice, Losasur. For non-Jews, though, who are also being addressed by King Solomon, we need to think more carefully about who who is implied by this Chachamim. Where does it derive its legitimacy from? When does it apply? Chachamim, the Jewish sages, do not have the authority to legislate for non-Jews. That's clear in the Ramam here. Although that's quite clear in the Ramam, surprisingly, it's not necessarily universally accepted. There's a Lecha Mishnah that sounds not that way. Lecha Mishnah, Hilchus Malachim, Laws of Kings, Chapter 10. A non-Jew who toils in the Torah is liable to the death penalty. Says, uh, just an important point to qualify this, when the Ram writes Goy, he tells us much earlier in Yad Chazaka that Goy means idolater, as opposed to Ben Noach, 
or Nochri is a, is a neutral term, an alien, foreigner, Nochri. But Goy is idolater. Ben Noach is one who has accepted upon himself to maintain fidelity to the seven laws of Noah. The Gertoshov status, where that individual is now given the right to settle in the land of Israel and to be sustained by the Jewish people, there's a question of what is required for that in the Talmud. The Ramam rules that it requires the acceptance of the seven laws of Noah in front of Gimel Chaverim, three friends, literally, of those that are presumably of, of, the, of the Jewish nation because he is being granted the rights to live in the Jewish land. This is something we can only do in the time of Yovel, when you have the Jubilee year in effect. We do not have the Jubilee year in effect today, so we don't have Ger Tosha. So Goy, an idolater who toils in the Torah, is Chayad Misa. That is what the Chassam Sofer says in Chulin. It's referring to an idolater. When it's not accepted, the monotheistic tenets of only one God and rejected all division within worship. That they, In order to be a out of the status of Goy, to be the status of Benoah, minimally that is required. Says the Lecha Mishnah, nearly, Tamla Rabbeinu, Mashakos of Ein Nera Galel, the Ramam says that he's not allowed to toil in the Torah, but he is not killed for it. Mishum Dehuk Shalom, that is because it's hard for the Ramam, Mashon Perak Arbamisos, that which is said in Sanhedrin 59a, Leka Midam Vlisrael Shari Lugay Aser. In general, we do not find Jews having a greater stringency than non-Jews. And here we find some stringencies that a non-Jew, an idolater, who is is observing the Sabbath in a, in a technical sense, halachic sense, and a, uh, well, goy, so idolater who does so, or who toils in the Torah, this is prohibited for a non-Jew and a mitzvah for a Jew. Tosas asks this question. We don't say this concept when it pertains to commands of the Jewish people. We only say this in the realm of heter, of things that are permissible, as opposed to things that are obligatory. Says he thinks that the Ramam is learning to the opposite. Adraba, to the contrary, it's not enough that it's permitted for a Jew, it's even a command to keep Shabbos and to toil in Torah. It, it couldn't be that he should be actually liable to the death penalty for this. Here's a sledgehammer from the Lecha Mishnah. This status of Chayv Misa, that the Ramam says, that is liable to death, is rabbinic. 